So this morning we will carry on with our study in the book of Hosea. Last week we looked at the first two chapters. We're going to build on that this morning. Hosea, referred to as the loving prophet, the Jeremiah of the north, if you like. And his name means salvation, quoted more than 30 times in the New Testament, which is more than any of the other minor prophets. And again, that expression, minor prophets, doesn't mean that they're any less than they're inferior within the likes of Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. Uh, It's just that their books, generally speaking, are shorter. Um, So they got given this title of being a minor prophet. There's 12 of them, and we're going to, by God's grace, journey through these over the coming weeks. Now, George Robinson made this comment. He said, in all the world's literature, there is no record of human love like that of Hosea. G. Campbell Morgan, another commentator, some of you may have heard of and be familiar with, said this, we have in the book of Hosea one of the most arresting revelations of the real nature of sin and one of the clearest interpretations of the strength of the divine love. No one can read the story of Hosea without realizing the agony of his heart and then lift the human to the level of the infinite and know this, that sin wounds the heart of God. What a statement by G. Cameron Morgan. Henrietta C. Mears, in her wonderful book, What the Bible's All About, some of you may have, uh, be familiar with that. It's really a great uh, overview summary of scripture. Makes this comment Hosea is one of the greatest lovers in all literature. We find his love so strong that even the worst actions of an unfaithful wife could not kill it. Well, as we saw in our opening session of this book last week, Hosea is told to go and marry a wife of whoredoms, a prostitute. And so he ends up marrying Goma. And now there's no suggestion that he didn't have a love for Goma. From the text, it seems that he really genuinely loved this woman. And we find they have three children together. It would seem from the text we mentioned last week that she has other children from other partners. But Goma and Hosea have these three uh, children together. First one, Jezreel, and each of them God specifically tells Hosea to name to illustrate a point. Jezreel, and you may be familiar in uh, the center of Israel, there's the Jezreel Valley, uh, often referred to as Armageddon, it's the same place, uh, the Jezreel Valley. Um, and it's the place, the, the name means God scatters, but also has an idea of sowing, so scattering and sowing uh, all uh, within that. Uh, and we saw last week how that is used and applied uh, as type in this situation. Then he has a daughter, Lo-Rahama, who means no mercy. We'll see again uh, that God builds on that idea. And then the final child, Lo-Ami, which means you are not my people. So God gives these names to Hosea to name his children to try and illustrate the point that he's trying to, God is trying to make to the nation of Israel. So I just want to look where we ended up last week, because in Hosea chapter 2, the last two verses, we read this, and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. That's the first of his children. They will hear the gathering. It's the promise at the end of this chapter that speaks of the judgment that God is going to bring, that it's the hope that there will be a gathering. Verse 23 goes on, and I will sow her, now again that idea of Jezreel is implied there as well, unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not attained mercy. That's Lo Ruhama, that's the second of his children. So God is now turning around 
that which we've already seen in chapters 1 and 2, and saying the nation that had not obtained mercy because of their iniquity, God is now going to pour his mercy upon them. And I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people. Now this is the third of his children, again, low Ami, that Israel will again become his children. That because of their disobedience, God had cast them off for time, that the nation had been blinded. But they will once again become his people. And they shall say, thou art my God. There's a two-way relationship there. God's going to say, you're my people. But Israel are going to in return say, you are our God. This is wonderful um, undoing of all that had been done. Now, once again, just to give us the, the time frame of this, if you look there, you can see on the screen all of the kings of the northern kingdom, starting with Jeroboam, around about 985 BC, uh, and going all the way down to Hosea, um, the final king of the northern kingdom. Uh, and it's during that period, really starting with the time of Jeroboam II, um, who, again, was a very bad king. Uh, one of the longest reigns, in fact, I think it is the longest reign. This is the longest reign of any of the kings in the northern kingdom. 64 years he's on the throne. Uh, it's during his time that Hosea and Amos also are prophesying to the nation. And then we have these other kings following on. Up to 722 BC, significant date, that's when the northern kingdom is taken away captive by the Assyrians. There's a lot of history intertwined in all of this. To understand the history, it makes a bit more sense of the details we see. Now, just looking at the, the layout of the chapters we did last week, we're now in that section moving from chapter 3 onwards, where we're going to see the redemption of Hosea's wife. We'll explain it in a minute. Uh, and we see it's an incredible type of Israel's ultimate return to God and the incredible lengths that God has gone to to make that possible. But then really from chapter 4 onwards, it changes the theme. Um, well, I say changes the theme. It, it changes from being a personal um, account of Hosea's life to God speaking directly to the nation and laying out his controversy. Effectively, if you imagine like a court of law, God as the prosecution is bringing before um, the judge, who is God himself is the judge, all of the list of the crimes they've committed. Uh, and that's what we see in those chapters. And you'll be, well, maybe surprised to see how incredibly it fits with what's going on in our nation. So let's jump into chapter 3. Now, I need to say chapter 3 is said by some to be the most important chapter in the Bible. Now, that's quite a statement. I mean, probably you weren't even aware that there was a chapter in Hosea that some thought was that important. And yet, there are some scholars that argue that this is one of the most, if not the most important chapter in the Bible. And there's a lot of candidates that you can maybe uh, say are, are the most important chapter. I mean, certainly 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about the resurrection, a really important chapter, and so on. Um, it's incredible to realize that this chapter is just five verses long. And so given that, it really is quite a statement. Um, Dr. Charles Feinberg, who was an outstanding Jewish believer scholar, he actually made this comment. He said, it's, it rightfully takes its place among the greatest prophetic pronouncements in the whole revelation of God. So certainly this chapter should get our attention because it really is quite important. And we'll spend a bit of time uh, on this chapter this morning. Some of you may be aware of uh, C.I. Schofield, uh, the Schofield Study Bible. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, work uh, by this man. 
and uh, lots of great comments and uh, commentaries uh, associated with it. Uh, he made this comment in Galatians chapter. He said, chapter 3 is one of the classic Old Testament passages describing Israel's past, present, and future. Her idolatrous past is illustrated by Gomer's unfaithfulness to Hosea. That's the first couple of verses. Despite which Hosea is commanded to love her and buy her back according to the love of the Lord toward Israel, a love which led him to pay the purchase price of the blood of the cross to redeem Israel, the basis of her restoration. The present condition of Israel is illustrated and plainly prophesied in verses 3 and 4. Her future is declared in verse 5, showing her repentance toward God, who in his faithfulness will restore her. So what we see is that in this chapter... These five verses, we've got God's incredible summary of his dealing, really, with the nation of Israel. So let's jump in and see what's here. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Then said the Lord unto me, this is Hosea, Go yet love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. Now, God's call to Hosea is to go and love her again. That's really what is being said here. It's not just go and love any woman. This is speaking specifically of Gomer, the person he already married, who's gone off and found other lovers. And God is saying to Hosea, go and love her again. Go, uh, go get Love a woman, beloved of her friend. She's given over to these other relationships. Yet an adulteress. But notice what he says. According to the love of the Lord. That's the love that he's to show. Now, interestingly enough, that is how all relationships should be. Yeah, our love shouldn't be based upon emotion, feeling, whatever. It should be the love of the Lord. If you're trying to love somebody without knowing the love of God, at some point it will break down. Because you know what? You may not have found this yet, but if you haven't, you will. Human beings disappoint each other. I'm sure you've experienced that. We let each other down. We are unfaithful. We make mistakes. We get things wrong, either intentionally or unintentionally, but either way, we can't rely on each other. And so if we try and love somebody based upon emotion or feeling or whatever else, well, that's a currency that very quickly will run out. But when we are in love with God, when we receive from God the love that he has for us, and we recognize that love is not about what we get, but what we give, well, then we can love, and we can keep on loving, because God's love is unconditional. God loves us that way, and that's how we're to love others, with the love that God gives us. And actually, it's an incredible thing when a marriage is built upon that love that is not looking for what it can get, but what it can give. Again, it can't be done outside of that relationship with God through his spirit. God says that this is how he has loved Israel, with this incredible love, that though she was Gomer in this uh, account here with Hosea was unworthy, yet Hosea is told to go and love her. And God says, that is exactly how I have loved Israel. And I said already, worldly love says, what can I get? Godly love says, what can I give? And it's true of God's love for Israel, and of course it's true of God's love for us. In Romans chapter 5, we read this. 
For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the same thing that we're reading in Hosea, that it was while Doma was in this state of sin and rebellion effectively against her husband, that's when he's told to go and bring her back. And it's when we were in that place of rebellion against God that Christ came, while we were yet sinners, to show his love, God's love, toward us. We sang a song this morning, Reckless Love, and uh, I've heard a few people say that well, you know, it's, it's not a good expression because God isn't reckless. But, you know, actually one of the definitions of recklessness is to pursue a course of action regardless of the consequences. But what better speaks of God's love than that? God's love was not stupid, it wasn't foolish, but it was reckless in as much as Jesus pursued that course of action regardless of the consequences. He knew what the consequences would be, but he did it because of his love for us. God's love for us truly is that kind of reckless love where regardless of the cost, he gave everything to purchase us. And we'll see that played out in these verses. So the second verse goes on. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and for half a homer of barley. So one and a half homers of barley. And you're probably thinking, what is a homer of barley? Well, we'll come to that in a second. The word that opens the chapter is this word kara in the Hebrew. It denotes purchase as from another. That's so I bought is the, the expression there. Uh, and it just it means that it's a purchase. What we deduce from this is that Goma had become a slave. For whatever reason, her, one of her uh, adulterous relationships had put her in a position that she was now bankrupt, she was in debt. And she'd become a slave to some individual. And this individual clearly was now putting her up for auction, putting her up for sale. Effectively, her life was no longer her own. And we might be able to say that you know, in seeking to gain her life, she wanted to go out and have fun and enjoy her life and get all the pleasure that she thought she could get. She lost it. Isn't that true of the world? Isn't that true of everybody that goes out to try and find satisfaction in this world? They end up losing it. And didn't Jesus say exactly that? You know, that we can gain the world, but we lose our soul. And isn't this a picture of all of us as well? You know, that each of us have become slaves. Slaves of sin. That our life was no longer our own. That's our state before we met Jesus Christ. That we were in that position. That we weren't free. The world speaks of freedom. They don't want to come to church or have to read the Bible or do any of those kind of religious things because they don't want to be bogged down with a set of rules and laws. That They don't realize that they're slaves to sin. Real freedom comes when we give our rights to ourselves, to Jesus Christ. When we put him on the throne of our hearts. Now, Goma was, as I said, put up at auction effectively. Now, there were three ways that one could become a slave at that time. Either by conquest, obviously by an invading army or so on. By birth, if you were born into slavery, your parents were slaves and so you'd be born and you'd become a slave yourself or by debt. Interestingly, we are slaves by all three. Because sin of course has conquered us 
we're born into the family of Adam, which is all of sin and fallen short of the glory. And of course, we owe this huge debt to God because of our iniquity. So we're slaves, in a sense, on all three counts. You see the parallels with our own lives here. Interestingly as well, slaves are always soul-making. It was the utmost humiliation. But again, that's our state, in a sense. We have nothing. We've been robbed of everything of value. Now, according to Exodus 21, verse 32, the price for a slave was 30 shekels of silver. Now, I spent quite a long time on this last night, reading through all the commentaries, and they all make various notes and comments, because if you go back to the text, we read there that, that, uh, Homer, sorry, that Hosea buys Gomer for 15 pieces of silver and for a home and a half of barley. And so a number of them are saying, well, you know, she was bought for just half the price of a slave. And I thought, no, this, this, this is missing something here. So I started doing some more digging. We do know, because it clearly says that Hosea pays 15, it says pieces of silver. Commentators have pretty much unanimously agreed that this was 15 shekels. It was a common currency of the time. It was 15 shekels of silver. And that indeed is only half of the price. So along with the 15 shekels, we find that Hosea adds this uh, homer and a half of barley to this. Now, this is a comment from Kyle and Dillich, um, great commentators, I respect them very much. They said this, according to Ezekiel 45.11, the homer contained ten baths or ethers. So if you're wondering what a homer was, now you know, so you can go home and wonderful afternoon. So you know that a homer consists of 10 baths or 10 ethers. It's ether and a bath being the same measurement of weight. Um, and a lethic was half a homer. Consequently, the prophet gave 15 shekels of silver and 15 ethers of barley. And it's a very natural supposition, especially if we refer to, and he gives a reference, or give a reference to 2 Kings 7, verse 1, and 2 Kings 16, 18, that at that time, an ether of barley was worth a shekel. So how many ethers are we saying? Well, we're saying there's 15. Okay? Um, so what we're seeing here is an ether and a half, effectively. So there's 15 ethers is the total. So when you read it on, it says, in which case the whole price would just amount to the sum for which, according to Exodus 31, sorry, 21, 32, it was possible to purchase a slave and was paid half in money and half in barley. All right? So let me just explain that again. So... Hosea uses 15 shekels of silver, and the rest of it he makes up in barley. And the equivalent weight in barley was worth 15 shekels. That's the point that we're making here. Why is that significant? Well, I think that's hugely significant. Firstly, note that the price was paid in full. Okay, the price that it was required to pay for a slave, according to the law, was paid in full. Again, I draw your attention to 1 John, where we're told that Jesus paid for our sin in full. He's a propitiation, the payment in full for our sin. Secondly, if Hosea had possessed 30 shekels, you know, that would have paid all the sun in shekels. So the fact that he doesn't pay everything in shekels, but gives over the shekels that he has and then gives over barley, would strongly imply 
that he wasn't particularly wealthy, he didn't have a lot of money, but he gave everything he had to purchase Daniel. And I think that's really significant because, again, that is what Christ has done for you and I. Not only has he paid the price in full, but it cost him everything he had. Gave him all the shekels and then got together all the barley, everything he had, and gave it over so that he could purchase his wife back from this person that now owned her. On account of her debt. You see, Jesus has paid the price for Israel's and our redemption in full. Again, that word on the cross that Jesus cries out to Telestine means paid in full. Jesus gave all he had. We read this in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus emptied himself of all that he was, all that he has. He became of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. It's interesting, isn't it, how many pieces of silver did Judas get given to betray Jesus? The price? 30 shekels of silver, 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And Jesus became that for you and I. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Um, there's only two verses in this incredible chapter. Let's carry on. Verse 3. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou also shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. Now, at this point, you've got to kind of ask the question, what was Goma's reaction? She'd been given over to slavery. She'd lost her right to herself. She'd lost her freedom. And then in steps this husband of hers that she treated so shamefully. And buys the full purchase, pays the full purchase price to bring her back home, to clothe her, to feed her, to look after her. And we're told here that Hosea says to her, that you're going to stay with me now. But it is more than that. I believe that the implication is that should abide for me many days. It's not just you've got to stay here. It's that I am going to look after you. I am going to care for you. Thou shalt not play the harlot. And you've got to just wonder whether in her heart and mind at this point, there's tears rolling down her face. She's so aware, aware of this unconditional love that's been shown to her. But maybe there's also that change in her heart. She's looking into the eyes of her husband, who's patiently loved her and endured and brought her home. Maybe now she doesn't want to go and play the harlot anymore, to go and seek the pleasure elsewhere. Isaiah says, Thou shalt not be for another man. Extending his claim over her, you are mine. I will provide for you, but to stay with me, you are mine. And that's what Jesus has done for us. It's just it's overwhelming to stop and think. You know, 
Jesus loved you so much that regardless of whatever has happened in your past, whatever you've done, said, thought, whatever company you kept, Jesus was willing to pay the price, to buy you out of slavery. And he says, come home. You're mine. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to provide for you. You're not going to be anybody else's. Do you know, there's a lovely picture in that as well, because thou shalt not be for another man. It's not just saying you can't have, it's saying you're no longer going to be under the authority of anybody else. Isn't that a wonderful thing? When Jesus says to you and I, you're not under the authority of the world anymore. God places us under the feathers of his wing. In fact, the Psalms tell us that place of security, that place of refuge. Hosea doing exactly that here for Gomer, bringing her to a place of safety and saying, no one else is going to rule over me. No one else is going to tell me what to do anymore. Anybody else's expectations of you do not matter. You're mine. You belong to me. I love you and I'll provide for you. And notice that last line. So will I also be for thee. You know, God does, doesn't just bring us in. He also says that he is for us. You know, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, a, a staggering verse. As you start to see why commentators say this is an incredible chapter. And we're skimming over some of these things. You can dig even deeper into this. You know, but the following verse then gives us kind of a commentary on this one and brings it in, in, into even more clarity. Because then we get the bigger picture. Of course, that's all real historical narrative we've just been reading. But just as we've seen in verse 3, this explanation is given here in verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, or without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. So this is why God is saying, through Hosea, Hosea saying to Gomer to come home, to be mine. Because all of this is now played out in this verse. Now, this really is an incredible prophecy because it speaks of the kingdom, the coming Messiah, the sacrifice and therefore temple worship, idolatry in regard to the nation, and then, of course, the priesthood as well. Let's just go through and look at some of these things because this really is quite a... I'm sure many of you are familiar, you've heard this, you know, we're familiar with some verses from the Minor Prophets, and this is one of the ones that probably stands out, for the children of Israel should divide many days without a king, without a prince, and so on. Well, let's break this down, just have a look at some of these things. From 587 BC, Israel had been without a king. In 606 BC, before this, so we're counting down for the next 606 BC is the year that Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Israel. And effectively, from that point, Israel are under servitude as a nation. And yet they're still allowed their own kings on the throne for a little bit longer. The last of those kings was Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. And in 587 BC, he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. 
despite what Jeremiah warned him about, he still went ahead, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, and said, Nebuchadnezzar comes with his army, and they destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, they take them away captive. Incredible prophecy is fulfilled, because Zedekiah was told by Jeremiah, I believe this is the right one, that he would never see Babylon. And yet elsewhere we're told that Zedekiah would be taken to Babylon. So people say, well, it's a contradiction. Well, it's not, because Zedekiah never did get to see Babylon, even though he was taken there, because when Nebuchadnezzar captured him, he had all his sons put to death before his eyes, and then took his eyes out. So he never got to see Babylon, but he did get taken there. Incredible precision uh, in the prophecies as they fulfilled. So Zedekiah, and effectively, therefore, the crown were taken from Israel to Babylon. And Zedekiah is the last king to sit on the throne of Israel. Now, while the Jews were in Babylon, Daniel, who we're obviously very familiar with, recently studied through Daniel, Daniel was appointed chief of the Magi. The title we're actually given is Rab Mag, but it's chief of the Magi. Now, that was an incredible honor for Daniel. It probably upset some of the locals. The, the Magi were a Persian religious sect. And they were renowned for various things, including appointing kings. Because they had this ability, apparently, to be able to understand and interpret visions and dreams. Now, of course, in Daniel, you understand in chapter 2, Daniel interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result of that, he's given this privilege of being in charge of this group of individuals who apparently could tell the future, because Daniel was doing just that for Nebuchadnezzar. Now because of this, the Magi, one of their chief responsibilities was to say who was to be the next king, because apparently if they had this ability to see the future, who better than them to say who should be the next king? So this group become known for appointing kings. Now Daniel entrusts these Magi with a secret mission. Based upon the prophecies that he receives, and particularly in chapter 9, Daniel reveals to them that at a specific time, they were to carry the crown back to Israel. The crown that had been taken to Babylon, they had to take back from Babylon to Israel and appoint the rightful king at some time yet future. Now, over 500 years pass. And then the descendants of those magi, still holding on to this promise and this prophecy that Daniel had given them, see a sign, they see a star. And so they start a journey toward Israel to take the crown back. And when they get there, their mission is to declare the coming of Israel's king. If you remember when they arrive, and don't be misled by our dreadful tradition that has totally obfuscated the truth of these things. There weren't three kings. They were major. And there could have been anything up to a thousand of them and their entourage with them. They didn't ride camels. They came on horses because of course Persians loved their horses. And this was all known. This isn't This is new stuff. We've just got to messed it up on our Christmas cards. So if you get a Christmas card with three kings and a star over the stable, you be polite to the person who gave it to you, but you know, it's the other way or something. No, the Magi came with that express purpose of declaring the king. So they go to the palace where, of course, you'd expect to find the king. 
And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod was very troubled. In fact, we're told that all Jerusalem was troubled. That doesn't happen with three doddery old guys turning up with a few gifts in their hands. But a thousand outriders turning from one of the most powerful empires that have been, arriving on your doorstep saying, where is the rightful king? That's why Herod was upset. And Herod, of course, wasn't the rightful king of Israel. He was an Idumean. He'd been appointed by Rome. And so it was a real challenge to his position. That's why Herod sets about then trying to kill the babies up to two years old because he realizes from the point that they'd seen the star and their journey and everything else, it had been about anything up to two years. By now, Jesus was not at Bethlehem. Jesus was back home in Nazareth where they lived. The family lived in Nazareth. And they traveled down to Bethlehem for the census. After 41 days, Mary and Joseph and Jesus as a baby were taken up to the temple. And offered the sacrifices required by the law. And by the way, they didn't offer a lamb because they couldn't afford it. They offered two turtle doves. It shows that Mary and Joseph were poor. They didn't have the gold at that point. And they meet Anna and they meet Simeon in the temple. And then after that, Luke tells us they go home to Nazareth. They didn't stay in Bethlehem. So when the Magi arrive, they didn't go to Bethlehem, which is why when they come out after seeing Herod, they see the star again. Why would they need to see the star? They've just been told where Jesus apparently was. No, they need to see the star to say, don't go that way, go that way. So the Magi go up to Nazareth to where the young child was. Jesus was no longer a toddler. He's now well, he's no longer a baby. He's now anything up to two years old. And they come to anoint him, effectively appoint him, declare him the king of Israel. So they bring the crown back. So although Jesus was legally a descendant of David and therefore was of the royal line, that line comes down through Matthew and we also have the line coming down through Mary. And although the Magi had declared him Israel's new king, in fulfillment of this prophecy that we're looking at in Hosea, Jesus has not yet taken the throne of David. But he will. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33, in the vision of the prophecy that Gabriel gives to Mary. This, Behold, Gabriel said to Mary, Thou shalt conceive in thy womb. I'm just extending myself. And bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Do you know that's not taking place? Gabriel said to Mary that Jesus will sit on the throne of David. He didn't. In fact, some years later, after the feeding of the 5,000, the multitude come, they want to take Jesus and make him king. And he doesn't let them. He slips through the midst and walks ago, goes away from them. He gets in the boat and sails over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He doesn't allow them to make him king. In fact, only one day in Jesus' entire ministry does he allow himself to be worshipped as king. And that's the day prophesied by Daniel, or by Gabriel through Daniel. But this is a great statement. It's telling us that Jesus is to sit on the throne of his father David. And, and I find it staggering that we get to Christmas time every year. And we sing carols, born is the king of Israel, and so on. And it gets played from 
supermarkets and down the town or wherever you go, you hear these Christmas songs and speaking about Jesus as the king and so on. I mean, it's the most politically incorrect thing you can imagine. It's saying that Jesus Christ is going to be the king of national Israel. National Israel who many in this world challenge even their right to existence. And yet every Christmas time we sing, Born is the King of Israel, Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and so on. You know, all these Christmas great tunes, great songs, and some of the carols are terrible because they're based on tradition, but the ones that are biblical speak of the reality that Jesus will sit on the throne of Israel. But it hasn't happened yet. But this promise was given to Mary that it will happen. Now, the disciples, of course, were confused because they thought that Jesus was going to come and wrest power from the Romans, establish the kingdom, and rule the reign. That's why Peter, in his wonderful act of bravado, he brings out his sword when Jesus is arrested in, uh, that night in uh, Gethsemane. And he chops off the high priest's servant, Malchus's ear. Jesus, of course, repairs the damage and says to Peter, put your sword away. Now's not the time. Peter thought this was the moment. This was the, that moment of insurrection. They're going to rise up against Rome and claim the throne back of Israel. Jesus says, no, not yet. Now's not the time. And so after the resurrection, the disciples are still a bit confused about, okay, what is going to happen? They recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah from prophecy was to sit on the throne of Israel. And so in the book of Acts, just before Jesus ascends, we read this, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? You kind of get a little bit of a sense of frustration in that. Well, are you, you going to do it now? Because they're starting to piece it together. They kind of realize that Jesus had to die, had to rise from the dead, that our salvation is based on that. But the prophecies still hold true that Jesus is to sit on the throne of Israel, the throne of David. Notice Jesus' response. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Jesus doesn't say, Guys, you've got it all wrong. It's a spiritual throne. I'm not really going to rule on the earth. No, no, he doesn't say that at all. Jesus says to them, It's not for you to know them, but it is going to happen. The Father has already decreed it. The Father has already decided when it's going to be, but it's not for you to know them. You see, this is a wonderful thing when we look at the so-called Christmas story. The shepherds arrive. Not just some random shepherds. These were the shepherds who had a very specific job to do. They looked after the sheep on the hills around Bethlehem. Those sheep had one purpose. To be used in the temple for sacrifice. And the shepherd's job around the fields of Bethlehem was to make sure that those sheep that were born were without spot and without blemish, so that they could be offered in the temple. So when the shepherds arrive, it's not just some random choice. But some people say, oh, well, because the shepherds were kind of, you know, not very highly esteemed and, you know, God chooses the weak things of the world. Well, that's true, but the reason the shepherds were chosen wasn't because of that. The reason the shepherds were chosen is because their job was to inspect the lambs that were destined for sacrifice. So the shepherds come, first of all, and they acknowledge that Jesus is the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. Sometime later, the Magi arrive to anoint him as the king. 
first coming, the Lamb of God. But the second coming, the Lion of the Tribal Jew, the King of Kings. Within that Christmas narrative that we've got so mixed up by tradition, this incredible declaration of the two comings. The first coming of Jesus to give his life to pay for our sin. The second coming, he will return to rule and reign. In Revelation 11, 15, we read this statement, and the seventh angel sounded, and there was a great and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's a statement that now Jesus is going to take the kingdom. Jesus is now going to take not just the throne of Israel, but the throne of the whole earth. Do you remember in Luke 4, and, uh, elsewhere, where Jesus, we have the account that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Satan makes that audacious claim to say that if you will worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Ever notice that Jesus doesn't challenge that statement? Jesus doesn't go, well, you can't offer me that. You know, if I were to, to offer you Tower Bridge and get you to sign a piece of paper, so well, you know, I'll give it to you, you can have Tower Bridge. It's meaningless because I don't own it. I can't give it to you. Satan makes that claim that if Jesus was to worship him, he would give him the kingdoms of the earth. The reason he can make that claim is for now, those kingdoms are his. Satan stole them from Adam. We're told that for now, he's the God of this world. But Jesus... As the kinsman redeemer, you need to do a study in the book of Ruth to see how all this really plays out. But Jesus, as a family member of Adam, will come with that right of redemption of the land, the right to purchase back that which Adam lost. Just as in the book of Ruth, Boaz purchases back that which Elimelech had lost. So Jesus comes in the same model, same pattern, to purchase back this earth. And Jesus will claim it. And he's right, he's uh, worthy to do so. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, John says, I looked to see if there was someone worthy to open the seal and the scroll. That scroll is the title deed of the earth. This is the property of the title deed. That scroll is the title deed of the earth. And John sobs convulsively. He weeps much, is what we're told. Because there's no one found worthy. And then, of course, suddenly the, the angel nearby says, Why are you crying? Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. Jesus is worthy to open. Jesus is a kinsman. He's related to Adam, and he's worthy without sin. And he will claim the earth back. And that's exactly what we then see going on through the book of Revelation as Jesus then relinquishes Satan's grip finger by finger on the earth and claims it back. We could go on. But let's move on to verse 4. I told you it was a great chapter, didn't I? We're in verse 4. This is the second part of what we're going to look at now. So Israel should abide many days without a king. They're in this period now where they are abiding without a king, waiting for Jesus to return to set up his throne. But the total said that many days without a prince. Well, that's the same prince that's referred to in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, the Mashiach Negid, the Messiah, the prince. Israel had not abide many days without a Messiah. Do you know, there was... An account that the Jewish leadership were distraught. I believe it was in about uh, 6 7 uh, AD that Rome ended the rights of 
Israel to administer capital punishment. And there had been a prophecy way back in Genesis that Jacob had given, saying the scepter shall not part from Judah till the lawgiver comes. You know, it, was a, it was a prophecy that the Messiah was coming. And of course, when this power, the scepter, the, the rule, authority, when this was taken away from Israel, there was weeping. And they said, you know, what has become of us? Because the authority, the scepter has departed, but the Messiah is not yet coming. What they didn't realize was up in Nazareth, in the carpenter shop, the Messiah had come. But of course, Israel rejected their Messiah, and as a result of that, Luke 19 tells us they've been blinded in this period of time we're now in, which we refer to as the church age. God's plan for Israel effectively is on hold. It's not really on hold because he's still working. He's still meeting out the judgment and the justice that we promised them. He's still doing so many things, bringing them back into their land. And yet, God's primary focus at the moment is to bring in the Gentiles. We'll come back to that thought in a second. But the point here is that Israel were to abide many days without their Messiah. They're looking for, they're waiting for their Messiah, but he's not yet come because of their disobedience. In Matthew 23, picking up verse 37, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets, the stone is them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth until you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus himself testifying that it would be a long time before Israel see their Messiah. Notice also that they were to be without a sacrifice. Well, though the Jews were able to sacrifice again once they returned from Babylon, from AD 70 onwards, they've not had a temple. And so they've not been able to sacrifice. So just as this incredible verse 4 in Hosea 3 tells us, they've abided many days without a king, without their Messiah, and then also without a sacrifice. They've not been able to offer sacrifices. Now, a temple is going to be rebuilt on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem any day now. Keep watching the news. But it's only going to stand for a short time. To start with, what's going to happen is the Jews, once this is built, will be allowed to recommence sacrifices after almost 2,000 years. And for three and a half years, it's going to look like it's going really well until this individual who's going to come onto the world scene, Antichrist is the name we typically refer to him by. Many titles given to him in the Bible, but that's the one that we're most familiar with. Halfway through, three and a half, halfway through a seven-year period, so after three and a half years, he's going to stop from sacrificing. In a rerun of what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC, and if you're not familiar with all of that, have a review of the Daniel studies that we went through. In a rerun of all those things, Antichrist is going to stop Israel sacrificing and they're going to be caused to flee to the wilderness. The last part here is that without an image and a teraphim. Now these two things are kind of linked in a sense because the image speaks of the idols they worship, the things they set up. So for a long time, Israel is going to be in a position they won't even have the idols that they used to worship. They're not even going to be in their land to be able to do that. And the teraphim, if you remember, Jacob, uh, well actually it was a uh, Rachel stole the teraphims uh, from Laban, the household gods, um, these things. And what this is telling us is that they're going to be in a position they wouldn't even have those gods. Now, 
Israel have also been robbed of their idols. That's true, but sadly, as a result of this, many Jews today have turned to atheism. And they say, well, there is no God. One Jewish scholar, not a believer, made this comment. I don't have to remember his name. But he said this, an atheistic Jew is one who knows what the God he doesn't believe in requires of him. And the last thing to highlight here is that without an ephod, what is the ephod? Well, the ephod was the linen apron that was worn by the high priest. What this is telling us, this verse, is that there'll be effectively no priesthood. There's no temple, there's no sacrifices. There won't really be, strictly speaking, a priesthood in Israel for a long time. If you look at the picture there, you can see this kind of apron, this tunic. So this is the ephod. On, on the tunic on the ephod will be the breastplate with the 12 stones depicting the 12 tribes and so on. Last verse. Afterwards shall the children of Israel return. Wow. I mean, we could spend the morning on that verse, that opening statement. Afterwards, after all these things, so just think what we've looked at. This is quickly go back. We've got to go back and just, just get our heads in that. All right? So we're talking about Israel abiding without a king. So he's speaking about afterwards. So when Israel then finally have a king, when their Messiah is revealed to them, when they are able to sacrifice again, because there won't be any adultery or idolatry or any of those things, but they will also have a priesthood be established. He's saying, afterwards shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Interesting. Now some think that's a reference to the Messiah, and it may well be. But there are other verses that tell us that David himself will be resurrected and will be given the authority to rule over the house of Israel. And David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days, the end time, where we're rapidly approaching. I just want to turn to Acts chapter 15. There's a great account there where there's conversation about the Gentiles and are the Gentiles to be allowed into the church. Remember the church started as a Jewish organization effectively. The Jewish group. Of course, God shows Peter in Acts chapter 10 that the Gentiles were to be brought in. And so Simeon or Simon Peter in reference. Simon Peter has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. That's where we are right now. This period of time where God is bringing in Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles. God is bringing in the Gentiles, you and I. And to disagree the words of the prophets, as it is written, notice this statement, after this, after what? After God has brought in the Gentiles, and this really should be the death knell for those that hold this idea of replacement theology that God has finished with Israel. Acts chapter 15, verse 16, should put an end to that completely. Because after this, after we brought the Gentiles in, I will return... Who will return? God, Jesus Christ will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof. And I will set it up. God is going to do this work. It's not going to be man's work. God is going to do it. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord. And we're going to find that in this kingdom that is coming, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, all nations will want to know the Lord. And in fact, people are going to speak to the Jews and say, tell us about your God. 
Let us come to Jerusalem with you. So again, it's verse after we shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness. There's going to be a complete change of heart in the latter days. Now Amos, who was a contemporary of Hosea, says this, And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof, and shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon my land, and abandon as a land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord the Lamb. God promises to bring Israel back into the land, to plant them, that they'll be fruitful. And notice that last bit, no more are they going to be pulled up out of the land. This doesn't apply to Babylonian captivity, because they did get back to the land, and yet they were rooted up and taken out again. Now this is saying there's going to come a time that God will bring Israel back to their land, and they will no more be taken out of their land. Now, we haven't got time this morning, but I encourage you to have a read of Jeremiah chapter 30, chapter 33, Ezekiel 36. Those are chapters that specifically speak of God's restoration of his people Israel. It's very, very clear in Scripture. There are so many passages. We will leave it there this morning. Next week, we'll pick it up and move into chapter 4. And then we begin God's charge against Israel. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for these five verses that, Lord, just give us so much clarity regarding your love for your people. That unconditional love, Lord, that saw you go to a people in captivity, a people in slavery, to pay the full price, to purchase and redeem them, though it cost you everything. And that you've taken Israel and you will take us, have taken us back You've clothed us, you've provided for us, and Lord, you said that you would be ours. Oh Lord, help us to love you in response to the love that you have shown to us. We thank you for these things this morning in Jesus' name.